did anyone even think that it could be a parasite? To me, it's remarkable that it, like we're not thinking about parasites because from an iron perspective, it is like one of the biggest things I see in Hashi women. They're losing their hair. They're exhausted. Their post-workout recovery sucks. They're, it's just, if you have that, which the majority of women that I work with do, you have to look at the parasites. Melissa Ramos is a nutritionist with a background in Chinese medicine and the founder of SexyFoodTherapy.com, where she helps women heal their hormones and digestion for healthy ovaries and poops, which we actually talk about in this episode. We also really dial in and focus in on parasitic infections, which are massively, massively underdiagnosed in the States. We talk about why, how to treat it, what shows up, why some parasites may not show up in your poop because they are living in your liver and your gallbladder. Grab a pen and paper, take some notes. This is a juicy one. Melissa Ramos, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I have followed your Instagram for a long time. If anyone is not following your Instagram, Sexy Food Therapy, they should, because not only is it formative, it is super entertaining. Well, I appreciate that. Mission accomplished. Woo! <laughs> so I wanted to deep dive into parasites. You've had a parasite. I've had multiple parasites. Why are parasites so underdiagnosed, especially in the States. You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because one of the times that I was speaking about parasites, somebody had messaged me on Instagram and said, how do you have parasites? You're so healthy. And this is where I think the idea about parasites is so, like we just have it wrong. I think that people just believe that if you're healthy, you don't have them. That's not the case. You can get parasites when you're living with other people in your household. You're sharing a bacterial soup as gross as that sounds. But you certainly can contract parasites through a multitude of ways. You can contract it through unfiltered drinking water. You can contract it through sharing drinks with other people, contaminated food. And I don't think that there's enough education around it. A lot of the testing that we have will miss a lot of that. And I don't think that doctors honestly think too much about it. We look at a variety of different methods in practice. And one of the methods that we look at is a stool test. Stool tests are not perfect, right? And there's one specific parasite, it's just an example of our society today, that is quite virulent. And oftentimes it's one of the parasites, the few parasites that I would suggest, go to your doctor, get an antibiotic. This is one that actually can go up into the brain and potentially kill you. And so please send this, give this to your doctor. The doctor looked at the stool test results, saw the parasite, and just said, oh, no, that, that can't be right. And so I think a lot of it comes down to a lack of education around the topic. And again, no testing was perfect. So that also could be part of the reason. What was that parasite that came up on that test for that patient? Antimeba histolica. There's like three big bad parasites. I mean, there's tons of parasites, but there's Giardia, which we've heard a lot of about, Cryptosporidium, and then there's Antimeba histolica. So that one can be pretty gnarly. I mean, all of those can be really bad, but there's so many other ways that we can get parasitic infection. I mean, we look at culturally from a long time ago, there's many different groups of people who had done annual, biannual parasitic cleanses because they knew this. But I don't think that in our modern Western medical paradigm, 
that that that's very well understood. So I think it actually comes down to a bit about education, which sounds crazy given that they're medical doctors. Yeah. My understanding, and you can tell me if this is accurate, is that at least in the States, a lot of the testing is done for research, not for diagnosis. And that a lot of the testing is done through DNA sequencing versus an actual plating looking for ovum and larvae. Correct. And I think that people ask me, how do you test for parasites? That's like literally the, the gold ticket question, right? And usually my response on social media, on Instagram would be, well, there's a multitude of different ways. It oftentimes pisses people off because they're looking for that one concrete way. So like, as you're saying, education and research, but not so much about like the testing portion of it. And I think that any good practitioner is going to play detective and understanding all the clues that we can find out. And I certainly can break those down in this podcast to help people understand a little bit more. It's just hard to kind of break that down into like an Instagram reply, like a thousand times over. So it's easier like, okay, I can break some of those clues down here. Because truthfully, you know, you'll see for many practitioners, myself included, photos of parasites. I like to see them. It's almost like, you know, Dr. Pimple Popper. Like, I think that we all need t-shirts when we've like eliminated a parasite. But do we actually know if that's a roundworm or a hookworm? I mean, we can kind of guess, but no one knows for certain. But certainly there's definitely some commonalities that we see. And I also think it's important to understand that parasites don't just live in your poop. They're very stealthy little buggers. They could burrow in the mucous membranes. They could hide out of system. They can hide out in the liver and the gallbladder. That's where they were for me. And when we start to see them eliminated, especially how people consider how you're supposed to eliminate parasites is also very backwards, in my opinion. They, they know what they're doing, but I'm like, mm, that can actually be quite harmful, which we can go into. But understanding A, how to do it properly, and B, most importantly, that they don't just live in your stool. So when someone goes to a practitioner, especially the ladies watching Hashimoto's, there's so many ties to gut health, right? Parasites being a really big part of it. But if you're simply relying on a stool test, you're going to miss a really big piece of the picture. So what would be some symptoms or some things that come up if someone potentially has a parasite? Because I think it's tricky because a lot of them overlap with many other environmental loads and even Hashimoto's symptoms. Yeah. So Hashimoto's, like we have to remember that 20% of your thyroid hormone conversion begins in your gut, right? So Hashimoto's, you have the crushing fatigue, you have the joint pain, there can be hair loss, anemia is a very big commonality with that. Skin issues can happen. Others could be rectal itching, anxiety. People will say, oh, I feel so off around the full moon. I heard this person online talking about that. And I'm like, eh, you could have actually a parasite because parasites are more active around the full moon. So if any of the symptoms that you have is you find, wow, they're getting a lot worse around that time, that could be due to parasitic infection. We have to remember parasites hold between six to eight times their body weight in toxicity. So because of that, it's almost like kind of playing a little bit of a deal with the devil being like, okay, so I'm going to hang out in your body for a bit. And if you kill me, I'm going to release all this stuff. I'm, I'm just going to kind of protect you from all these things, even though you're still maybe symptomatic with digestive issues and out of whack antibody levels. And like I said, the joint pain, the muscle aches and the crushing fatigue, et cetera, especially anemia. I don't think people really understand that there are other causes, I don't want to say it's all due to parasitic infection, but it's the number one reason why I see women have 
really low bottomed out ferritin levels, which just for clarity for those listening, ferritin is a marker that helps you to understand how much iron your body is actually storing. So you could have normal iron level, but then your ferritin levels could be super down the gutter. And I'm like, well, how is that happening? Well, the body, what it does is it will push down ferritin as a protective mechanism, which is pretty cool because it's trying to protect you because pathogens feed off of iron. So your body's like, okay, well, hang on a second. I'm going to push down the storage form of iron so that we could push it down from pathogens, whether that's H. pylori or which is bacterial or parasitic infection from gobbling up on it. So it pushes it down to help to protect you. So the number one reason I see that's another symptom is due to parasitic infection. But there could be other causes. I mean, mold toxicity could play a role in that. Uh, heavy metals certainly could play a role in anemia, but usually parasites are a big one. Those are like the most common symptoms of parasites. Why are parasites so opportunistic with things like mold and heavy metals? I think that the best answer I can give you is that it's like playing a deal with the devil at the end of the day. They're sequestering a bunch of it. And that really is what it comes down to. They sequester a bunch of toxicity, which is why when you're doing a protocol and some people will go, okay, I'm going to do rounds and rounds of mold. I'm going to do rounds and rounds of Lyme protocol. Then they never get better. And there has to be some level of orders of healing, right? And so parasites are super stealthy. They're very opportunistic, but they're very stealthy. So it's hard to actually find them because they end up creating what's called the biofilm which is like this, I always kind of equate it to like a mask that they're hiding behind. They can become very opportunistic in the sense that your immune system might not even detect them. Like one of the ways that we look for parasitic infection, one of the many clues is, are some of your white blood cells elevated? But just because your white blood cells aren't elevated doesn't mean you don't have a parasite because if there's biofilm that they're hiding behind, then they're not being picked up on, right? So they're very, very, very stealthy from that perspective. I saw on one of your Instagram posts, talking about eosinophils, mm -hmm. right? Because that's picked up on a blood draw. Yeah, It's not a stool test that has to get sent to a very specific lab. It's just a blood draw. And that if there was a presence or an elevation of eosinophils, that you could potentially have a parasitic infection, which seems like, wow, I feel like almost every medical doctor I know orders that test. Yeah. Why has that never been talked about? Uh, again, I think it comes down to the lack of education. Eosinophils are probably one of the, the biggest white blood cells that I'll see elevated. It's not to say that monocytes won't be elevated or we won't see potential viral or bacterial parasitic infection. Again, they're merely just flus. But no, oftentimes they don't. Doctors will look at it and go, yeah, it's totally fine. And also we have to understand that when doctors are reading our labs, they're reading labs based on these really outdated lab ranges. And that's where so many women with Hashimoto's, what it takes, I don't know how many years for the average woman with Hashimoto's to actually get diagnosed, but it takes you almost up to 10 years to even develop the condition, right? Like think about how many doctors, I don't know if you saw multiple doctors before you were diagnosed thinking like, oh, I don't know what's going on, right? For me, that was the case, right? Because they're not running antibody levels, but for things like white blood cells, and all the other markers, lab ranges are based on a sick population from 60, 70 years ago, extremely outdated, right? Versus, you know, these functional ranges that I would look at or other practitioners in the field look at are based on ranges that your body's required to function at. But I think that that also plays a role is like education and also some things are just simply outdated and it sucks because I think that that's where a lot of things get missed. Yeah. When you treat parasites. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? Because I think a conventional approach would be a medication that's taken twice a day for like 
three days, two days. And I remember going through that and thinking, that's it? Because when I Googled, like these parasites are making 20,000 larvae a day times how many days times how many years? I was like, just two days of medication and that's it? Yeah. Is that really the treatment? Yeah. Gosh, I wish it were not easy. No, it's not. I mean, to be honest with you, when I'm addressing a parasite, first, I always want to make sure that the first strange pathways are open. I always use the analogy of, and I guess it's probably like the old bartender in me is like, you can't kick out a drunk guy from a bar with the doors locked, right? It doesn't work. So if you're trying to detox and you're all the doors are locked, where do you think these things are going? Especially how I mentioned that parasites sequester so much toxicity. When you're killing that, oftentimes you can feel pretty awful. I'm one of those people who tends to get quite constipated when I do parasitic uh, protocols. And I'm not a constipated gal. But when I do a parasitic protocol, clearly there's a lot of toxicity that they're holding on to that's just kind of like clogging things up. I think that there's a belief that you open up drainage pathways for a month and you're good to go. And I'm like, that's not necessarily true. Drainage always has to be opened. I mean, ideally it would be open for the rest of your life, right? Because you just need it for a healthy, happy life. So you got to make sure you're eliminating. But after that, when we're actually working on parasitic infection, I'm looking at, number one, we got to address biofilm. If we're not addressing the biofilm there, a lot of it can get missed, right? Because they're super stealthy. They like to burrow. I really am a huge advocate for colonics and coffee enemas. Coffee enemas are great for the liver. They help to increase glutathione status, which definitely need for women who have Hashimoto's, especially if you are at a point and you have to be under the care of a practitioner properly introducing any level of iodine, which I realize is super controversial. But if you ever get to that point, you need to have glutathione because of the amount of free radical that actually can happen as a result of adding in iodine. So glutathione is super important. So coffee enemas are great for that. But I remember saying to my practitioners, I don't think I'm ever going to put someone on an antiparasitic protocol without doing colonics. Because if you think about, like, you know, you go to school, you see the really pretty illustration of your large intestine. Not everybody's intestine looks like that, right? Sometimes they could be skinnier some parts, sometimes a little twisted in some parts, it kinks and grooves. So when I'm addressing parasitic infection, which I do with a number of different herbs and addressing the biofilm, I want to make sure I'm flushing them out. Because a lot of that stuff can be stuck in those kinks and grooves. I know that that was the case for me. And getting a colonic during a protocol felt like almost like turning the light switch on. And that was a really, really, really huge thing for me. Like my ferritin had tripled in a matter of four months, which is unheard of. Like that is a huge jump because ferritin takes time to bump up. So it's a combination, honestly, of herbs, binders are extremely important. You can't kill something and then expect that it's just going to go. Like you have to be binding that whatever you're killing, plus all the toxicity it's releasing is super important. And so when I'm looking at parasites, I want to get an understanding of, well, what kind of parasites are we looking at here? And then getting super targeted with the protocol. Because, you know, often have women say to me, oh, you know, it's it's totally fine. I took some black walnut pollen. I'm like, well, did you know what kind of parasites you had? No. Or I took ivermectin. I'm like, well, that's great if you had strongyloides, but it's not going to work for everything. And I think because most people have been conditioned with an allopathic approach of like take a pill from your ills, just that's how it's going to work, that people just assume one thing is just going to lead to this elimination. It's just simply not true. How do you identify that through your experience 
When you talk about identifying the parasite, you're talking about identifying it on a stool test. So a multitude of ways. Stool testing helps, but because your poop is not homogenized, in other words, it's not a smoothie, like it's not all blended up together. Actually. Yeah. That's a visual. I hope you guys aren't eating when you're watching this one. Uh, Snapshot, right? <laughs> but like when you're doing this, if you've ever done a stool test, you know, you have to poop into something that looked like a burrito bowl. And then you got to pick out various parts of your poop and then put it into this little container and shake it up. But because it's not homogenized, you could be missing some stuff. We do do stool testing for sure because it is helpful. But we also look at blood work. So we look at someone's liver enzymes. If their liver enzymes are elevated, then we're thinking, okay, there probably are some flukes that are hanging out in there. That was the case for me. And when you eliminate flukes, they look like rolled up tomato skin when you eliminate them. So I had eliminated a bunch. They come in different shapes and sizes, but I eliminated a bunch of those and even uh, eggs as well. So that was fun. And in addition to that, we also looked at bioresonance testing, which I realized sounds super woo because you're looking for the energetics of the specific pathogen. But in our experience, having a, I'm a huge skeptic of a lot of different uh, types of testing is looking at that and going, okay, so what's coming up and seeing the accuracy with so many of our patients again and again and again, it'll give you the bioresonance of various different pathogenic, different parasites, for example. And then we can get super targeted. And then we've just seen the protocols work so much better as a result. When you're doing a colonic, is it a gravity colonic or a pressurized colonic? I've done both. I have always preferred a gravity set. That was what was the what I had always done and just always really preferred. I live now in a really small mountain town. I live outside of a 10,000 person town. So I live in a smaller town. There's like one street and a bunch of little homes there. It's apparently a town. But we have one lady who does colonics here and hers is pressurized and she's literally about to retire soon. So like beggars can't be choosers. So I did that. And so interesting you're asking me that question because at least now I have an idea between the two types of systems. I think both are great. She has a really fancy machine where you can see there's a tube and light and everything. And I mean, I think both do an incredible job. Personally, I prefer the gravity side. I feel like a good colon hydrotherapist feel like what's happening in the system a bit more. I, I feel like it's a little bit more intuitive in that perspective, but that's just personal experience, truthfully. Do you ever feel like a colonic makes you feel depleted, low energy? I mean, it can from the perspective of if your body just did a ton of work, like the last colonic I did, I did the colonic. I was astounded. It was like, wow, how much can actually come out of you? And at the <laughs> end of it, I just was so tired and I don't want to say sore but I just was felt like I had a, a huge workout so I don't know if I felt depleted as much as I just felt tired like I knew my body had quite a bit of workout because I'd eliminated a lot generally speaking I've always had the opposite experience the one thing about colonics that I will say is that when it hits a gas bubble it most certainly can be very uncomfortable and that's where you're just you just got to breathe through it but for the most part my first colonic was in two 2004. So it was a long time ago. And back then, I think I was going to the bathroom like two, three times a week. I'm a huge advocate for them because I've just seen a huge help. Now I probably, I, now I go and I do them when I do a protocol. So I'll do maintenance parasitic protocols probably about twice a year. But yeah, I wouldn't suggest doing a parasitic protocol without a colonic. Coffee enemas are great. Don't get me wrong. But I do believe the colonic is going to be a lot more thorough. 
We actually haven't dove into coffee enemas on this podcast. Uh, and I actually have never experienced one. I'm actually really curious. Now, coffee enemas, you don't just use regular coffee. Okay. The brand I use is S.A. Wilson. So S and Sam. S.A. Wilson. And it's not a coffee that you drink. It has a lot more caffeine than regular coffee. And so what I suggested to people, I always tell them, like, do about half or even a quarter of what would be suggested, which would generally be about like two tablespoons. So I would say, start off with a teaspoon. Start off slow, especially if you're really sensitive to caffeine or some people are like, if I have any caffeine, I end up having anxiety, which is when I would say, okay, well then maybe just do tepid water that maybe is like a chamomile tea because chamomile is an antispasmodic. It helps with any sort of spasming in the colon up to be really, really soothing. But coffee enemas are fantastic. When you do the coffee enema, there are different ways that you can do it where there's like a silicone bag. I do the little aluminum pot. I just prefer that one better. I soup up my coffee enemas. So it's always better to do the fresh. So you meaning that you prepare the coffee enema mixture that day. So not days before and leave it in your fridge type thing. I add chlorophyll into it. And the reason why that I add things to my coffee enema is because you absorb so much. You can absorb so much rectally. So think of there's various women who might be on certain hormone replacement therapies and they'll do anal suppositories because the absorption rate rectally is going to be far greater than orally. So the same thing with coffee enemas. So this is where I'll add in things like CT minerals, cellular, into the coffee enema mixture because I'm the one absorbing my minerals. If you... Coffee enemas are specific for the liver and the gallbladder. They help to increase glutathione levels, which is excellent. But usually I like to give the gallbladder a little bit more of a boost. So I will open up capsule of advanced Tutka from Cellcore, which is specific for the gallbladder. And so I'll open up a cap of Tutka. I will put it in the coffee enema mixture and I'll mix it around with the CT minerals and the chlorophyll and the coffee enema. So it is a bit more souped up than like a regular coffee enema. And so when you end up inserting it, like you're sticking your butt up in the air, the contents will flow inside of you. And when all inside and you feel comfy as you can, then you lay on your right side because on your right side is where your liver is. And so you're just going to lay there. Now, on average, you should be laying down on the right side for between 10 to 15 minutes. When you're first starting it, that might not feel great. You might be like, I remember when I first did it, I thought, oh gosh, I can't do this for longer than five minutes. There's no way. I suggest going into a bathtub because some stuff might spill out a little bit, but you'll find that you can end up increasing the dose, but don't push yourself. Like, no, no, I got to do the 10 minutes. I got to do the 15 minutes. Like if you can only do it for five, that's totally fine. Then eliminate it. Understand that you're going to feel a bit of a a caffeine boost from it because you're sticking coffee up your butt. My husband doesn't drink any coffee. I think, well, you don't like coffee. That is the strangest thing I've ever heard. And it's strange to me because I'm Brazilian. It's like we were raised with the stuff. So he did a coffee enema during a parasitic cleanse, bless his heart, because he's not in the industry. So it's like, yes, for being a good champ. And afterwards, he went rock climbing and he's like, man, I crushed that wall. And I was like, yeah, because you're souped up on caffeine, right? So it's, it's actually a really good boost to people will find that they'll just have so much clarity afterwards. I think that the problem with colonics and coffee enemas is really the mental thing behind it. Like, oh, I don't know. I got to stick this thing up my butt. But once you can get past that, it's actually, you'll find that you'll feel so much better afterwards. I think it's really important because it stimulates your body's own production of glutathione. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And glutathione taken sublingual isn't really well absorbed. Mm-hmm. 
you can get an IV, a glutathione push in an IV. Or suppositories. Now, which I haven't tried yet, admittedly so, but there's a company called MitoZen. I think it probably would be cheaper for Americans just because the shipping to Canada is like a little crazy. But they have the anal suppositories and they have nasal sprays of glutathione, which I think is really fascinating because just the absorption rate of it is going to be so much higher. The other reasons why I really like coffee enemas is because it helps to increase bile flow. Women with Hashimoto's, what a lot of them don't realize is that they'll often have gallbladder issues because you need enough thyroid hormone to be able to contract the gallbladder muscles. So what you'll end up seeing there is that there'll be improper bile flow that will occur. And for reference, for those of you guys who are listening in, bile is, I always call it like the banana slide of like toxins and excess hormones because those excess hormones and those toxins, they deposit into bile and then your bile eventually is supposed to go into your poop so you could poop it out in the most simplistic terms possible, right? But when you don't have enough thyroid hormones, your gallbladder can't contract and squirt out that bile which it happens when you're eating protein and fats. And like yourself, I advocate for an animal-based diet. I advocate for higher protein. But we also have to remember, like, how much can our gallbladder actually handle? Are we supporting our gallbladder through this? And whether it's parasitic infection or doing a coffee enema, we have to make sure that we're really supporting that elimination channel as much as possible because your liver produces that bile, but your gallbladder is what's squirting it out. And for a lot of women with Hashi, who have also generally have, not always, but a lot of women have estrogen dominance, that will end up uh, depositing cholesterol deposits and it thickens up that bile. So then you've got like bile flowing out like mud. So that elimination channel is even more sluggish, which is why I'm like, anything to help with bile flow it's excellent, which hence why coffee enemas is also another huge win for it. Could we help support bioflow in other ways? What we're eating? I know some people would be like, don't suggest beets because of oxalates. I mean, if you have a problem with oxalates, sure, then avoid beets. But beets can be very helpful with that. Taking bitters before a meal. There's a lot of really great gallbladder tinctures that you can take afterwards that will have things like peppermint in it will help to actually stimulate bioflow a little bit. Eating bitter greens as well. I'm not that kind of person who labels what I eat, I do advocate for an animal-based diet, but I don't think vegetables are, they are not the devil. So I think there's a time and place for certain things. And then there's a lot of women who have their gallbladders completely removed. Super common with the Hashi ladies. Super common, especially after pregnancy, right? Because your progesterone yeah. levels crash and then it's like, okay, well, this person's going to be more predisposed to having gallbladder issues. So liver support is going to be super critical during that time because that liver's partner organ, the gallbladder, is not there. So that's somebody who would have to take things like bile salts would be really helpful. Supporting their liver, all those things, even advanced tutka from Selfor would be excellent to take with a meal to help to support and facilitate those organs. So how important is it if you are getting treated yourself for parasites that you treat your partner potentially? My husband usually allows me to, to test him like twice a year. Because he's like, okay, enough. Because I can get a little crazy and neurotic with the stuff. But it's what I do for a living. I mean, usually I would suggest to women if they can test their partners, it would be ideal. If their partners are super resistant to it, I still think that they can get a lot of benefits in getting tested, undergoing a protocol for themselves. But yes, there are going to be certain realities with like you do share a lot of fluids when you're living in the same household. And then also towels, like sharing towels, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Like a lot of people don't know that. Like, yeah. oh, we all use the same towels in the household. Oh, that could actually share yeah. parasites if one person in the house has it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, like I said before, 
while I've gone under really big protocols for myself and for patients, et cetera, I still do maintenance work as well, right? Because I go on a lake out here and I go swimming. You are in a city and you go in the pool. You're sharing that time, that same environment with other people. So we have to be a bit realistic. It's not that I'm going to be spending like a gazillion dollars for the rest of my life on this stuff. It doesn't have to be that way. There's something to be said about living and enjoying your life and not being super regimented. I know that you, you talk about that on your Instagram as well. It's like, there's so much things we can do and get crazy obsessed about, but there's something about like living and just enjoying your life. So yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Yeah. I mean, I do have to say there has been an element since treating, I think it was the histolytica that you mentioned mm-hmm. in the end of the podcast, hookworm, roundworm. It has almost become, there was a time where it was paralyzing. As you know, I shared with you on Instagram, like we have a house in Bali. Yeah. Many, many people, when you go to Bali, you get quote unquote, Bali Bali. Bali, Bali. Yeah. And then you go to the local Bali bodega and they have these yellow pills, but you're still in the bathroom exploding from both ends yeah. for a week. And we have a water filter in our house. Anytime you go out, you can't control that. And going through this process of treating parasites, I'm like, do I want to go back to Bali? Yeah. And then I have to remind myself, I could pick this up anywhere. Yeah. I could pick this up ordering out in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you say that because I was in Bali in 2016 because I have a photo up. So 2016, I I was in Bali, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And then I went back to Bali in 2019 and did a staff retreat there. And I remember in 2019, I got so sick, so sick that I actually was trying to get a flight home. And the only thing that would help me because I was having this horrible intestinal cramping for literally five to six hours after I would eat was taking GI Revive. And I always say, like, I think everybody should have it in their cabinet because it's, I call it the anti-stomach cramping remedy. Not period cramps to be confused, but it's just really good if you're having sharp gut pain. So I was like running out of it. I'm like, oh God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it wasn't until I went to this place in Ubud where I just ate like an all protein breakfast. And I'm like, how come I don't have this pain after breakfast, but I'm having it when I eat smoothie bowls or other things. And sure enough, I tried all protein for lunch because but it's like it's like smoothie bowl heaven. It's really hard yeah. to find meat. But I found a restaurant that was a no-tail restaurant and I ate there and I had no pain. And I thought, okay, there's something to this. And that's actually was my first introduction to animal-based eating. And specifically then I was very carnivore. But at that time I didn't realize that I had SIBO. And so many women come in with SIBO. And are like, well, I don't understand. I'm on rounds and rounds of SIBO protocols. I'm like, because you have to address parasites first. I don't care if there's mold. I don't care if there's SIBO. I don't care if there's candida. It has to be parasites first because they sequester so much. Otherwise, just going to go through rounds and rounds and rounds of protocols and get nowhere. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Sometimes I have women come into thyroid strong. And the first thing that's treated is their candida. And I ask questions just so that they can ask better questions. But I think it's important that in the healing journey, there is at certain times a hierarchy of like, treat this first before you treat this. Yeah. Drainage, parasites. And then I always try to reevaluate to see like, did we really get all the parasitic stuff? Did we really get everything? And then you can dive into the other stuff. But I think the only exception to that would be if someone got bitten by a tick and they have a classic yeah. bullseye rash, which by the way, is not the only way you can get Lyme. But if you're like, okay, I see the tick, taking it out, then I wouldn't be like, okay, well, we got to do drainage first and we got to do parasitic. Like, no, no, no. Well, we probably have to jump into a live protocol in tandem with the parasitic stuff, which would mean it would be a much larger protocol. That had happened to my husband where we had pulled off 
two ticks from him. And I'm like, okay, well, lucky for him, he just finished a drainage protocol. And I'm like, great, you're an awesome standing for this. This is like the perfect timing. And I think that probably would be the only exception where I would like actually blend other types of formulas in there. When you pulled those ticks off, were they engorged? Uh-huh. Kind of surprised that we hadn't seen them sooner. So I don't know if they were engorged prior, like maybe they're sucking off of another animal and then they went on to him. That's possible. And I always tell people, please don't give your tick to the doctor or the hospital because they're only going to test for Lyme. In the States, I know you can send it to Igenix. In Canada, we have a place called Genetic Ticks and pay for the full testing diet because at least you're going to have an idea of like, what are you working with here? It can be really, really insightful. Are there other ways to help support your drainage pathways? And when you're talking about drainage pathways, you're talking about pooping, peeing, sweating. Pooping, peeing, sweating. The lymph is a big one because the lymph is one of those areas I was called like the underdog organ, right? So the lymphatic system, you know that you have a congested lymphatic system, maybe if there is like increased cellulite, like cellulite's normal. I don't want people to slip out because we all have it, right? Like I've got some pinches that have been there with me since I was like 17. But I really do think that the lymphatic system is one that often people forget about. So dry skin brushing, cold plunging is really, really helpful for it. Sweating is very helpful for it. Moving, it doesn't move unless you move. Your lymphatic system's made up of 90% water. So you got to make sure that you dehydrate. It can be quite simple in that regard. I do like the hammer guns. I have found personally it's been super helpful for post-workout recovery. With that said, there are some exceptions with that, that some people have expressed that they feel kind of sick after that they do it because mm. when you're breaking up fascia, sometimes if, if there's a lot of toxicity then stored in those tissues, sometimes I feel that sometimes people can get a little bit, that they might feel a little bit ill afterwards. That's a very rare exception, but I found them to be really helpful because I had struggled a lot with poor post-workout recovery. If you find that you're really stiff and sore, um, that's also a sign of uh, lymphatic congestion as well. But lymphatic is a big one. The liver and gallbladder we've covered. The kidneys, huge. I think there's this misnomer in the health world of like, okay, drink half your body weight in ounces of water. And I'm like, yes, but mineral balancing is really important. So try to switch that belief. Not that water is bad. It's just maybe add some lemon at one point. Maybe add a little bit of sea salt. There's a company called Bumble Root that I really like. They have uh, these drinks that have some coconut in them. I think the fruit is called Bao. I think I'm probably going to say that wrong, but it's a really high potassium beverage. So they've got pineapple and a turmeric ginger and then a raspberry hibiscus mint, I think. And they're really great because women with Hashimoto's with thyroid dysfunction, their potassium levels will tend to be quite bottomed out. And from a mineral perspective, their calcium levels will elevated. So we have to try to restore that balance. And mineral balancing takes time. So if you're drinking half your body weighted ounces of water every day, why not fortify it with mineral-rich drinks like bumble root or nettle tea is a great one. A lot of people will say coconut water. Very high in sugar naturally. I actually like to cut half coconut water with half cooled nettle tea. So it reduces the amount of sugar. Very pleasant tasting. You're getting very nutrient mineral dense hydration and that's going to help you to hydrate properly and from a mineral perspective it'll help with Hashimoto's patients substantially because potassium ladies if you have Hashi you have to make sure that you're like getting in your potassium food sources so those essentially are your elimination pathways and of course the skin right sweat like one of the most crucial things and right now it's like you know it's summer here but if you're listening to this and it's the winter and you live in a small space like I do. I live in a tiny home. I have a sauna blanket. And I just found it to be extremely helpful. 
But yes, your skin is another seed wood. But again, this isn't just for detoxification. This is for a healthy life. So you're not eliminating, you're going to feel horrible. How often are you doing a like, kind of like a prophylactic parasitic cleanse? Probably about twice a year. And they're not, I mean, I probably do them for now. I probably do them for about two weeks or so. And I schedule them around the full moon. So I'll do them. People think, okay, full moon. But you want to think of like the three days leading up to it. And then maybe a couple of days afterwards. So I will usually do about like a week prior and then a week afterwards. And then that's about it. So about two weeks, maybe. Yeah. And in that process, have you been like, oh, hello, little guys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I didn't even know you were in there. Oh, yeah. I still do. I still do. The last time I'd eliminated a worm that was probably about the size of a tablespoon. I'd mentioned the salutes were a big one with a bunch of eggs. And I remember when I eliminated the worm specifically, my husband had said to me, I don't know what the heck that thing was sucking from you, but you were a completely different person. I was like, well, how so? And he goes, well, you're more patient. Not, I don't think that I'm impatient, but he was, he goes, you're just, you just seem a lot clutter. You seem a lot lighter. My energy levels had increased. My ferritin levels jumped up. I was always chronically anemic for my whole life. Going to the doctor, you know, they give you like, there's iron. Yeah, it's going to constipate me. Go to a naturopath and they're like, okay, well, here are some natural sources of, you know, iron supplementation. Everyone's just treating it symptomatically. And I'm like, did anyone even think that it could be a parasite? To me, it's remarkable that I like, we're not thinking about parasites because from an iron perspective, it is like one of the biggest things I see in Hashi women. They're losing their hair. They're exhausted. Their post-workout recovery sucks. It's just, if you have that, which the majority of women that I work with do, you have to look at the parasites. So cute. Where can people find more information or find you? My business is Sexy Food Therapy. And there are two ways that people can work with me. So number one, I have a hormone membership platform, which is a low cost for membership that gives women the ability to upgrade to get testing if they so choose to kind of go that next step, or they can stay at the base membership and just really take things at their own pace. And then the other offer that I have is an online school, and it's called the Sexy Autoimmune Academy. And that's where, that's designed for women, for the average woman to learn a crash course in what I do. So in other words, they learn how to heal themselves. They learn how to, which labs to run and where to get them, how to interpret those labs, how to create their own protocols. And it's not about, okay, I'm going to learn how to be a practitioner so much as I want to feel better educated and empowered so that if I am working with a practitioner, I feel educated enough to know what questions I should be asking them. Or I've been gone, I've done so many protocols. I've gone to so many practitioners. I'm spinning my wheels. I really want to take matters into my own hand. So that's um, definitely a little bit more of an intense offering, but it's a really, really great one. So um, yeah, they can check me out there. And even Instagram is where I'm most active. You just find me sexy food therapy and you'll find me. And the course, is that where if someone was interested in learning a parasite cleanse protocol, would they find that in that course? Oh yeah. So we have, I've structured it so that we have everyone who, all the students who joined, they get uh, testing as part of their education. They get a consult to spring from with a practitioner. So they're not just like thrown to the wolves and say, okay, figure it out on your own. And then there's base protocols that women have. And then I've got these handouts which I kind of call like add-ons. So if you're seeing signs of liver and gallbladder congestion, then you can go to the handout and go, okay, these are the things I need to implement, things I can add to this base protocol. And then there's, of course, other protocols there 
that I think are really helpful that if my kid gets bit by a tick and the child is six years old, what do I do? Because you can't, that child can't take doxycycline, otherwise it could permanently stain their teeth. Not everyone knows that. So I think that there's something in it for everybody. And there's some of it who joined who everyone pretty much has either an autoimmune or an autoimmune associated condition, like polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis. And there's other women who joined because their kids have an autoimmune condition. Huge. And then we're going to drop a link in the show notes, but I think you are including a blood lab, I think it's a mid-course. Yeah. So this is something I developed because I was getting so frustrated because women kept trying to be going, I'm not getting answers from my medical doctor. They're not writing the the appropriate tests. So I just to preface, I'm not a medical doctor. So my background's in functional nutrition and Chinese medicine. And so what I developed was this little mini blood test discovery kit. So for $27, you get access to my contacts who you could then reach out to, whether you're in Canada or the US or Australia or the UK, and then you can get those contacts and then you could pay them to get a requisition. So we give you a full listing of which labs you need to run to get ran because most people have no idea. In addition to that, there's also video tutorials and I've included there that help you understand a little bit about the basics of how the first steps you need to learn how to become your own healer. So nutrient deficiencies, how to replenish them, how the system works in case you're wondering, why does my doctor say that? Why isn't my doctor testing my hormone? All those answers are included in some mini little video tutorials. And if the person is a major dork like I am and they want to learn how to interpret their labs, the one thing I would suggest to you is on the checkout forum, select the $37 upgrade and I'll send you a video on how to interpret your labs. You'll literally get the document where you can add in all your blood work results and you'll see all the functional levels listed there, which you will start to see from your lab results to that document. You're going to be amazed at how narrow those functional levels are and how broad those lab ranges are. Then you're going to have a really good idea why so much has been getting missed. Such an amazing offer. And we'll include that link in the show notes. Awesome. Melissa, thank you so much especially touching upon a topic that a lot of people don't talk about. Yeah, we got to talk about coffee animals too. That was so, so much fun. fun. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. So much. If you enjoyed this episode or even learned just one new piece of information to help you on your Hashimoto's journey, would you do me a huge favor? Rate and review Thyroid Strong Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you used to listen in to this podcast and share what you liked. Maybe you learned something new. And if you didn't like it, well, shoot me a DM on Instagram, Dr. Emily Kybird. I read and respond to every single DM. I truly believe all feedback is good feedback, even the ugly comments. If you're interested in joining the Thyroid Strong course, a home workout program using kettlebells and weights, where I teach you how to work out without the burnout go to dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. You'll get all the most up-to-date information on when the course launches and goes live, special deals and early access bonuses for myself and my functional medicine doctor friends. Again, dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. I hope to see you on the inside, ladies.